hope you enjoy this message from South City C3, a location of C3 Church, Christchurch. Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you for letting me come and speak with you. Um, thanks, Josh, for this uh, sermon slide. I think it's... Uh, What's, what was the name of the title? Yes, it's not the end of the world. And so, so for last, I think this is sermon three out of our ser- series, I believe, right? Is it sermon three? Oh, thanks, bud. And of course, I, 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 wanted, I got to choose this. So, the, so Josh was being kind to me. He's like, he said, what about this one? And it says, what happens when you die? Yeah, like, ooh, <laughs> like one person. Everyone's like, ah, I know what's going on. What happens a minute after you die? What happens immediately after you die? So I want to unpack uh, both if I can. If, you, if I have the time, I do. Okay, so I was saying to Josh, it would be great if we had like the black with white scriptures and white with black scriptures, so, um, but we couldn't do that. So here's the thing. Uh, I want to first start off with a story. You know me, I love my stories. Um, so when I was at First Baptist Nelson, Nelson, British Columbia, Canada, not Nelson, up, it was kind of funny, side story. I was at this New Zealand pastor's conference, and I was meeting this guy named Tak Bana from Auckland. And uh, so he said, oh, where are you from? I said, I'm from Nelson. And he just looked so perplexed. He's like, what? He's like, he's like your accent doesn't measure up with the city. I said, oh, no, Nelson, British Columbia, Canada. And he's like, oh, now it makes perfect sense. He thought I was from Nelson Up Island. Here I was um, as a senior pastor in the city. I was a, one of our community leaders for our city. And I got asked by the hospice to uh, come to a special panel discussion. We've had panel discussions here before. And they said, would you, as a Christian pastor, give us a, uh, uh, the perspective of death and dying from your perspective. I said, oh, I said, he goes, you've been a chaplain in hospitals. I said, yes. He goes, you've served in, you know, many kinds of uh, funerals and celebrations of life in the city. I said, yes. So I said, would you consider coming up on, on this forum and speak about the, the Judeo-Christian perspective of death and dying? I said, sure, I'll do that. So I came thinking that it was just me, but then I came and it was, of course, it's a forum, it's a panel. So I said, okay, so here I had this one woman, and I didn't know we had a lot of uh, Jewish people in our city, but she was representing the Jewish perspective. So I was like, oh, I'm going to sit a little bit closer to her, because we're close. You know, Judeo-Christian? Okay, anyways. Um, so then it got a little weird and wonky the farther left it went. So right beside me, I had a Tibetan Buddhist. And then right beside that person was... Uh, a, a natural spirit, spirit uh, crystals, you know, like, 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 I lived in a city that was very new agey, so it just gets even weirder. And then the last person, I think her name was Barb, and Barb had her own spirituality, so it was kind of like, well, this morning I woke up and had some cornflakes, and that's my spirituality. So the whole time we were sitting 
And each person, Barb started off first, and she kind of had this universalistic, secular humanistic kind of play on death and dying and, and rites of passage. And it was really convoluted and weird and a lot of amethyst crystals and geodes and incense and smudging and all that kind of stuff. So when you said smudging, I was like, I kind of, oh, Barb. And then uh, the Tibetan Buddhist came, and he uh, didn't, didn't start going home. He, he, he was a white guy, actually, so he was interesting. Um, he, his thing got really complex for a faith that's very unique and supposed to be pretty simple, his death and dying in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, there was a lot of rules and regulations. And then uh, the Jewish person beside me, I was like, oh, I was so intrigued. They do a thing in death and dying for Jews. It's called the sitting of the Shiva. Have you ever heard of this? The sitting of Shiva is, is, is when someone dies, you go to their house and you sit on low chairs. You sit really low, like as low as this first step. You're really low, and you take off your shoes, and everyone around you is uh, cooking food and taking care of all your... And you sit for seven days, for hours, like the, from dust to dawn. You just sit, and you sit the shiva. And it's just this time where you talk about the person that's passed away. You sing songs, you play board games that that, that person loved, or you eat the things that they, that person loved. And I was listening to this person. I said, oh, that's amazing. Then it was my turn. So then I, I, I didn't kind of pick holes with Barb I, or pick fights with other people. I kind of just quickly said, what happens when you die? And I said, well, for the Christian, because I was not talking the unbeliever, but the believer, it's to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Thank you very much. Don't forget to tip your waitress. I'll be here. All... And it was, it was as simple as that. And they kind of said, well, is there, could you give us some more? I said, no, that's about it. And they were kind of like, well, that's a little bit too easy. I said, but isn't that just how the good news of Jesus Christ is? When it comes down to the brass tacks of this amazing gospel, is that when you die, you're absent from the body, but you're immediately in the presence of the Lord. Well, they, didn't, they, they did invite me back next year, but they, not the year after that. But first, let's talk about the unbeliever. If you guys have your Bibles, we're going to do a ton of text, so hopefully you brought your workbench with you. Um, so, and I think it's in the sermon notes, so they hope they might be hyperlinks. I don't know. So the first one is Luke 16, 19 to 31. And I'm using uh, here at the church the English Standard Version. So ESV is word for word, where NIV is more thought by thought. So let's look at this. Rich man and Lazarus, verse 1. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who uh, feasted sumptuously every day. Oh, man, is that a word, Josh? I like that word, sumptuously. Every day, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from which the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Oh, that's gross. Um, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. 
The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his table. He said this, Father Abraham, he cried out to him, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things and Lazarus in, the, in, in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, but none may cross there from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no. Father, Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. There's this dichotomy of these two men. The rich man, actually in uh, Latin, uh, they would translate this to the, the word dives, D-I-V-E-S. So a lot of times when you're reading about this uh, in older books, it's dives and Lazarus. He was clothed in purple, and fine linen. Back then to dye, and I've mentioned this in my uh, series on Philippians, they would have to find this special crustacean or this uh, shellfish that was able to be ground down and be made into this purple dye. So to dye an entire garment in purple was really expensive. So this is just to, to kind of qualify and quantify how rich this man was. Feasting sumptuously was exotic and costly. But recognize this. You see what he said? Every day, what was he doing? Okay, better yet, Jeremy, what law was he breaking if he was eating every day? What was he breaking? Sabbath. So here he is blatantly, flagrantly saying, I don't care. I'm breaking the Sabbath. I'm going to eat sumptuously in your face. And they didn't eat with forks or knives or spoons. So it was the crumbs that fell off the plate that this poor man just desired. This poor man here in this context is given a name. That's why some commentators actually say this is probably not a parable. Because if you know your New Testament theology, so glad you're doing a theological thing, walking through a wall with fish I think I know the text you're talking about, but uh, it's good to talk about that. So, theologically, in the Gospels, almost, I would say, every parable doesn't have proper names. So, this one, some say it's totally a parable, but I don't think so, because there's an intentionality for 
Lazarus to be mentioned. Notice, if we want to look at dies being Latin, Latin for is Eleazar. Do you know what Eleazar means? God is my help. Ooh, that got, that got deep. So, so, so sickly and so destitute that street dogs would come and lick his sores. Sadly, I was uh, working in Calcutta with uh, Mother Teresa's leprosy mission. Actually, she, her mission, a lot of people think it's in Calcutta, but it's not. It's actually a train ride away because these are unclean people. They can't be in the city. So they're shipped off to this little town called Tidagar. And so when you go there, there's uh, men, women, children. It doesn't matter. The leprosy has, uh, like, it doesn't have any kind of filter. And these people are just, when they first come in, they are just sore all over. They can't, of course, they cannot feel. They have no sensation. So they have open wounds all over their bodies. And a lot of times when people rescue lepers in the streets, dogs, these disgusting, I remember in in the Bahamas, we called them poke cakes, like these disgusting dogs where their udders would drag along the ground. I remember in Fiji, they would do a culling of these street dogs. They were just horrible. And I can imagine these horrible street dogs licking the sores of this sick man. So that's the context. The story breaks into three parts. The situation before, before the death, the sin of the dives, this rich man, he had... He had not ordered Lazarus to be removed. He had no objections to receiving the bread. He had, he had not kicked up him in passing. He wasn't cruel to him. But the reality is it wasn't the sins of commission that he was being called out on. Better, it's the sins of omission. It wasn't the, that it was that, you know, he did things to this destitute man it was because he didn't care about the, this destitute man. He was okay. He was not even tolerant. He was just like, don't care. Apathetic. Die in the street. Not my deal. Not my problem. He normalized this destitute, sick, poor man and said, that's on you, bro. I got, I got my own thing. His sins of omission is what, in the end, did him in. Kind of challenges us, doesn't it? We can be so fixated on looking at the three mirrors in Josh's office and looking at the vanity and going, I did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. Better, man, I I should have done something. It's not always what you did. It's what you didn't do. And this rich man didn't care for Lazarus. Well, Lazarus heads into paradise to be with Abraham, Abraham's bosom, and dives, this this rich man heads into the dark and dreary and horrible place, Hades. Notice that he's fully conscious, isn't he? He's able to have a conversation. He's not just in soul sleep where he's just kind of, wake me up when Jesus returns. He's fully conscious. He's in torment. There's two words that mention repeated that I'm in torment. There's flames in this torment. This isn't Club Med. This isn't some kind of like, you know, minimum security prison. He's in anguish. 
I remember one uh, commentator said, these are the highlighted desires and senses, but there's no fulfillment. It's as if you have this desire to have a cheesecake, and you're like right there, but you don't get it. You know what it tastes like. You know when's the last time you had a piece of cheesecake? Oh, it's so yummy, and whatever. And you're just like, oh, I could see it. I could smell it. I could feel it. Oh, my gosh, it's right there. The anguish is that you'll never touch it. Because what, what is said is there's a chasm, a divide, a gap. That's anguish. And he looks up, and he, he has voice to call, ears to hear. And he comments on the split. Eternal destiny, if you're taking extra notes, eternal destiny is fixed. Verse 25, you're looking at your Bible. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things and Lazarus in the manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. There's no mixed metaphor here. Calls it like he sees it. Lazarus is, is in a fixed eternal comfort, and the rich man dives is in eternal anguish. More on purgatory later. Verse 27, and he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. And warn him. Well, what's, what's, this, what's this mean? Well, the rich man... He, he understands that what he's getting is just and fair. He's not, he's not trying to like negotiate anymore. He's, a, he's at a place of resignation going, fine, I know what I'm going to get. This is it. But go now. Do something with my five brothers that are still on earth, still up there, that still have an opportunity to do something. They have agency. They have the ability to change. He did not complain about the judgments. But he begged in the, in the New Testament, I think in the Greek it says, he asked to convince them. Oh, could you go and convince my brothers? Don't let them do the stupid thing I did. In verse 28, for I have five brothers so that they warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. What does he do? He himself calls it. You know, he paints the kettle black. He knew what his brothers, where they were destined. Verse 30, and he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them, check this out. This is the beginnings of a missionary movement. What? How dare you? I know, I'm looking at our missionaries in the middle here. Luke and Izzy, they're going, missionary? What? Was that? Yes. Here, the rich man actually is missionary. Check this out. He goes, if someone goes, anyone, Pastor John, please go. Go to them. Tell them. So here, now the rich man not only re kind of res resigns, he resignation, res resigns. He says, I get it. I know this is my torment. But if someone now goes, he becomes evangelistic. Wanting, yearning, begging, do something for my family. Hades is not purgatory. Some of you say, here's a quick theological one-on-one too. In the Roman Catholic Church, 
Purgatory was a device that the church used or the Pope used for the most part to get land and money. They would say to you, it's like, oh, Josh, I'm really sorry that your, your, uh, your, your brother died. I'm, I'm just using his thing here. And so if you, we don't know where he is. They would use Luke 16 to, to, to manipulate you and go, yeah, I don't know. Maybe he's in, in this kind of Hades, this purgatory. So, but what you can do, Josh, is give me uh, 2.5 hectares of land and a thousand pieces of gold. And then I'll talk to the Pope and maybe he can, you know, we'll kiss the ring. And then all of a sudden he'll send you an edict and say, your, your brother is now in Abraham's bosom. And for years and for decades, for hundreds of years, that's how this church created a theological construct that really isn't biblical. But Hades is not purgatory. It's not this in-between place where you just fall asleep and hope and pray that your, your, your loved ones on the other side, those five brothers, could rush to the priests and go, I've got money, I've got land. Can you pray them into the kingdom? Sadly, no. I just said, it, the, eternal fix, the, the eternal fix is that, it's fixed. Once you're there, you're there. Look at Revelation 20, 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into what? A lake of fire, the final destination. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire, full stop. The ultimate end of Hades will be this lake of fire. The people judged at the great white throne will include all those who have rejected the message of God, like dives. They are all raised at this final judgment. The last judgment will not occur until death and Hades give up their dead. But for the believer, oh, it's so good. I want to, if I can, switch. Everyone take a deep breath. It's very deep and very dark, John. We, but let's just look at hope. Five images for the unbeliever. Number one, if you're taking notes, is the word departure. Second Timothy 4, 6. For I am already being poured out. This is Paul. He says this. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And then here, at the time of my departure has come. This kind of mosaic language. This exodus See, what was happening was the nation of Israel was crying out to God. This Pharaoh is so evil. We need to get out of Egypt. And God sends who to Egypt? 
Jeremy for the win. Moses. Moses comes. And he says, let my people... Oh, you guys are half awake. How Charlton Heston can we get? And so then the nation of Israel, they're screaming through out of Egypt and their chariots, and they go through what body of water? Caitlin. Big, big body of water. Big lake, kind of. What is it called? Red Sea. And they go through it, and then they're like, oh my gosh, here comes Pharaoh. And then they're right behind them. And then, they're, and then what happens to the water over Pharaoh's chariots? Leah closes and and off they went and two days later they showed up at the at the promised land right yeah yeah yeah. they wished how many years there Nathan 40 but here's the promise they were promised to a land of milk and honey This departure that Paul has is the same language that's found in the the Exodus. When we die, we immediately depart to a place where there's the promise of milk and honey, a promise of a beautiful land, a paradise. That's the first word. The second word, if you're taking notes, is a restful sleep. Not soul sleep, but a restful sleep. John 11, 11 says this. After these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus had fallen asleep. But I go to awaken him. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Not a soul sleep where we lose our sense of consciousness, but a blissful time of rest before the final resurrection. Number three, I've mentioned it already, paradise. Luke 23, 39 to 43. And one of the criminals who were hanging rallied at him and said, are you not the Christ? Save your, I love this guy. Oh, he's a, He's a a player. Save yourself and us. You ever read it that way? What What a player. What a hustler. Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we we indeed justly. For we are receiving due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Jesus says this to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. All I have one word to describe this, instantaneous. Amen. I'm sitting there in the forum and all these people are telling me this massive long process of death and dying and, and, and reincarnation and transmigration of souls and just a lot of words, a lot of words. And then I'm saying instantaneous. It just, amen. I should be the biggest amen in the room. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, it says this, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Instantaneous. 
Your soul, emotions, mind, and personality are with the Lord. You're not some kind of mechanical like Angela, welcome Jesus, I am here, your servant. No, no, no. Jesus says, Angela, yes, you're here. Welcome. Come on in. And Angela's like, dee, 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 dee. like she's all full personality. She has all of her mind, her intellect, her emotions, her personality. She's doing her dance. And, and, and the father's like, yes, she's here. Party. Let's go. We, we tend to forget that when we enter paradise, it's like, oh, no, I won't remember anything because I'm just enamored with the worship of Jesus. That too but Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit are going to go, yes, Josh is here. Woo! Look, here's all your family. Here's all your friends. Check. Remember that guy you told about Jesus 10 years ago? He's right here. High five. <laughs> Amen? That's heaven. It has to be heaven, right? We should be excited. Okay, number four. I think it's four. A collapsing tent. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. He says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in heavens. My son took our beautiful two-man mountaineering tent on the year 10 uh, trip this year. And it got a pole that, during the massive windstorm, a pole ripped right through the nylon. And uh, there's damage to it. All the poles are broken. But that's the thing about tents. They're not supposed to be eternal. You are not eternal. You're fall I'm falling apart. My knees hurt. I have, I'm losing hair. I had darker hair. My teeth are good. They could be worse. <laughs> but but that's our te uh, this tent is not built to, it's not built to last. I'm not ram tough. I'm not, like, we, this is going to start to fade away. But here's the thing. I kind of want it to, right? I don't want, how many of these dystopian movies do you see about trying to prolong life? To take out your soul and consciousness and put it into a little disc and put it into another body. How, why, that, that's what we're all wanting, right? We think that we have to prolong this life on earth. But what does Paul say? Oh, I'd rather, what? I'd rather be with Jesus. This house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Our bodies are like that tent, gradually falling apart. And I love this last one, the sailing of a ship. Philippians 1.23, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better I wish I, I was thinking about this doing, because I was, I was just doing some research today on visual learning. Who's here a visual learner? Yeah, okay, you're lying. You're, you know you're a visual learner. So what I was going to do is I was going to get someone in, a, in an office chair and put you over here and get you a piece of rope, because this is what this image is, the sailing of the ship, is what would happen is big, huge, tall ships would be out in the ocean. And if they were coming close to um, a coastline and there wasn't a, light, a lighthouse, what they would do is they would send two young, strapping, strong men and go in a boat and you would, you would row to shore. And off they go, row, row, row your boat all the way to here with a rope from the ship. And they would get to the shore and they would tie it and somehow they would, with all the, you know, pulleys and stuff, 
they would literally pull the ship through the storm, through the seas, toward the coast. That's what they would do. That is what Jesus says when he goes to a place to prepare something for you. That is the imagery. You're in this ship and you're in raging seas and fog and you can't see where anything is and you know there's a coast, you know there's a heaven and you think, oh, I'm just trying to get myself there. That's baloney. That's the worst lie of the enemy. You know what Jesus did? He took the rope, walked on water, because he can, check this out, walks over to the coast, single-handedly goes, you ready? Just like John 10, my sheep know my voice and my voice, you know, you ready? I don't want to know where it's going. Just hold on. And over this, that's one year, five years, 10 years, 20 years, until you're 99, he goes, you ready? I can see you, Jesus. That's why when I would do work in the care homes, you know what they would all say? They would almost start saying, I can see him. I see him moving all the time. I said, what, Harold? What are you talking about? He's like, Harold was this 95-year-old man. He had no filter. No filter. I said, Harold, what's going on? He's like, praise Jesus. Let us just sing right now. This is a non-Christian environment. Harold, you can't do it. He's like, I'm 95. What are they going to do? Fire me? Get rid of me? And all the time. And then when he, when he passed away, he was starting to say, I can see him. Why? Because the ship is right here. And Jesus is like, I can, I can see him. He's like, you're almost close, Harold. I got you. I always had you. So if you're struggling in the, in the midst, in the fog, in the crashing storms of life, just know that Jesus prepares the way. He takes your rope all the way to heaven. He goes, you ready? I got it. You ready? Let's go. I got you. One year. Well, actually, one minute. Ten minutes. One hour. I thought that would do better, but okay. It's late. Hebrews 6.19 says this. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become the oh, high priest forever, even after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus went before us, stood on that shore and said, you ready, Nathan? Here we go. One year, two year, three year. And there he comes. See, just like that. And last, and I think I love this, I want to end with this. Jesus, paradise, ship, sailing. It's a home. John 14, 1 and 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. Where I am, you may also. My final thoughts tonight. I know eschatologically, you're saying, John, you skipped over a lot. I know. That's why you have to take me up for a cup of coffee and we'll follow up. 
I understand we've missed out on the judgment seat of Christ where Jesus looks at the Lamb's book of life and sees your name written in blood and he says, oh my gosh, I, when I see you, I don't see the sins. I see righteousness of Christ. I, I, miss, I didn't miss it. I said, I can't preach all of it knowing that our names are written. We know as believers that our eternal destination and journey is not torment, it's not separation from God, but it is a blissful reconnection and redemption with God. Amen? I titled this sermon, Decisions, Decisions. And that is right. God dropped this nugget on me. You guys, can I say nugget, like a gold nugget? He goes, check this out. If you're, if you're wanting a tattoo, put this out on your tattoo. Ready? There has to be urgency to agency. Agency is the ability, and oh, Angela knows this. That's it, girl. Soul tour. Hashtag soul tour. Um, Bex, do you know this? Agency. The ability to have, the, the ability to change, right? To change. So there's an urgency. Where's the urgency in your life for this gospel? There needs to be an urgency for agency. You have right now. That's why, that's why the, the, the rich man was yelling up. He goes, there's urgency. They have, my five brothers, they have agency. They could do something. They could change. They could not omit la like Lazarus. They could do something with their sin. They could become a follower of Jesus. Don't put off tomorrow what you could do tonight. So my challenge for you tonight is if you have not become a follower of Jesus where you've said, Jesus, take my line, head out to the coast of heaven and draw me there. If you haven't done that tonight, what are you waiting for? There's urgency to agency. There's urgency to agency. But some of you and most of you know Jesus but you and I both know, brother, sister, mom, dad, who is it for you? Right? And I've been praying, oh, so much, the urgency to agency, right? Feel, do you feel that? You should. That's going to, that'll cut you. It should cut you deep. So we're going to sing a thing. I think we're singing. We're going to, why don't you stand? And if you haven't become a follower of Jesus, you just simply say, Jesus, I, I need your forgiveness. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. And I want to be with you in paradise. And if you've made that decision tonight, please come see Josh and myself or Jaunty, one of the leaders. Because why? We want to pray with you. We want to celebrate. Amen? We want to celebrate with you. But if that's not you tonight, and you're, you're feeling the weight of those people, those lost people, the urgency of agency, let's pray for them tonight. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To learn more about our church, visit c3chch.org.